Welcome back to the Levity Zone. This is our first podcast for 2021, bringing you a key new theme for our times, boundary disillusion. The late Terence McKenna, an entheo philosopher and raconteur who passed from this life 21 years ago on April 3rd, 2000, called for boundary dissolution as an elixir for humanity on its rickety road to shooting the wormhole through to long-term survival and thrival. Terence's elixirs were psychedelics, and I propose that there are other potions that can dissolve these boundaries which divide us. Terence and I collaborated on Avatar Cyberspace Explorations in the late 1990s, and I picked his brain and picked up and ran with one of his other key questions. How does novelty arise? I.e., how do more complex things concress out of simpler ones? Cracking some of this code over the past two decades has led to our current proposal for how life itself emerged, and a new, perhaps more complete view of the dual nature of nature. We propose that nature rests on a base substrate of collaboration, supporting a theater of competition above. It is not strictly survival of the fittest driving evolution forward. Through my life since my time with Terence, I came to understand the sometimes painful boundaries dividing us, that are coded deeply within us through sometimes traumatic programs installed when we ourselves were emerging as young beings. I believe these are the boundaries that Terence was referring to, the boundaries which separate us from one another. So perhaps it is time to address and heal some of these boundaries on this Terence Day 2021 a.k.a. International Boundary Dissolution Day. Terence will open the discussion with the topic area of boundaries and their dissolution, and I'll take it another step and give you an update on my new conception of novelty, and then I'll hand it over to you to take it from there. I mean, it truly is, and you will hear me use this phrase over and over again, boundary dissolving. And that's almost, for me, synonymous with freedom. This is what we want to do. We want to dissolve boundaries between the rich and the poor, the feminine and the masculine, the living and the dead. All boundaries do dissolve in the psychedelic experience. And the social metaphor that captures this is revolution. Revolution is an eruption from the unconscious. It is not a reasonable thing. It has a logic of its own. It's as though the overmind reaches down into the mechanics of political process and says, no, it won't be that way. It will be this way. What Terence was calling for is the boundaries that are built by fear, they're abundant in in human beings because through evolution we were were evolved to be afraid of the other. The proto- human primate homo nalidi with the short shorts uh, brow and a very you know tiny brain and long arms and whatnot looked as alien to the almost modern humans that were in its environment in southern africa a, a creature from zebul ganubi or whatever terence used to talk about 
that created fear in the hearts of our ancestors for millions of years. In a sense, the, the challenge that we have is that we, we set up boundaries per se almost all the time because it's how we're evolved. But when we do something you know, to our systems to dissolve those boundaries, we become open and accepting, so open system or open cup, the Buddhists call it. You end up softening, and then you end up doing something even more remarkable, which is letting the experience of another come into your body. And I call this realm bending, or you know, the, the open cup Buddhist idea of the per other person's personality or flashes an insight into their lineage their story coming into your system and running as a simulation, a simulacrum of them uh, inside you. And you obtain something called deep empathy. You, you can see the world through their little child part or their little, you know, frail, wobbly personality. And you can have a kind of empathic knowing of deeply of who they are. And you're, you kind of dissolve. This is an extension of what Terence used to talk about, boundary dissolution. And I think in the last 20 years since his passing, we've done so much work in understanding uh, our little child parts. You know, it was, it was barely a whisper. You know, there was the concept of subpersonalities and whatnot, and it was in psych psychology. But now everybody understands what trauma does to the human soul, especially at age one or two or ten or sixteen, what kinds of traumas can inculcate, you know, wounds and parts and, and sub-processes and new apps can get installed. We're understanding the human operating system like we've never done before. So in the 21 years since Terrence, we know about the boundaries we need to dissolve. So for an example, a patient coming in for PTSD using MDMA, uh, opening their heart, removing the shell of fear that they can't even get at, they can't access, and then softening that heart and it comes out as a fluorescence. And suddenly the trauma that made them afraid of, of the world or of loud sounds or of men if they've been sexually abused or of the fear of fire or any kind of fear starts to self-heal and energy start to move through it and they start to release the grip on on that programming what i called terence day which is the day of his passing april 3rd 2000 i subtitled it international boundary dissolution day because that's what he called for, and that is what we are better and better at doing now than we've ever done. We know what the boundaries are. We know we know ourselves better than we've ever known ourselves. He called for the medicine. Sometimes, sometimes people call psychedelic compounds, psychoactive compounds as the medicines. I have a different term I love to use. Uh, I call them the elixirs, because to, to call something Medicine always implies a condition you're trying to treat, an ailment. An elixir is an exciting, not often used word that 
is the opening. It can be a medicine, it can be a potion, it can be a dispelling or despelling if you've been, had a spell cast upon you. But it can also be an opener of the realms to allow a tremendous vision, to, to round, allow enlightenment, a light entry. It, it, an elixir is, a, is magic. So I'm, I'm putting forth today on Terence Day 2021 this new term, maybe it's the old original term, elixir, to describe the experiences that we crave, you know, we so crave as a species of the transcendent, of the numinous, you know, the luminous, the, the billowous, bilious, uh, through elixirs. We also in this time have the most copious, best studied, purest supplies now coming into medical medical technology from which they were you know they were cast out during the criminalization of the 60s and 70s they're on their return through fda clinical third stage breakthrough therapy type of things at least psilocybin mdma but in other countries you know lsd and and of course cannabis the great original root transformer of the, the psychotic mind, and this is an idea from before, that psychosis was in, induced by LSD or even by cannabis. It's a real balm for the psychotic state or the state of fear of everything and uh, or lack of trust of anything. So I think that that's, that's why boundary dissolution matters and may, maybe for the 2020s a reinterpretation of what we mean by dissolving boundaries. And then if, if the boundary between our guarded hearts and our fearful minds and our neighbors is dissolved, we come together as communities, we learn to love all of them. You know, maybe the hippies got it right, but love with discernment, uh, love with what Catherine, my partner here calls fierce compassion, the source root of feminine power. We come together and we can remake the world and we can remake the world rapidly. Terence called for that. He, he thought that we were going to hell in a handbasket and picked December 21, 2012 as a, a convenient date for it. I sat with him in, in Hawaii in his, in his library, you know, smoking terrible Hawaiian weed and tried to talk him out of that. But I think he was you know, properly concerned about humans that we're going through some kind of point of no return uh, and that we really need to pull back, you know, pull the handbrake a little bit and slow the, slow the, the this mad dash down, which perhaps COVID-19 has done for us. So we can also kind of throw back, cast back to Terrence that we are living in a kind of a singularity you know, of smartphones and AIs and COVID-19 and crazy rapid-fire mimetic waterfalls of stuff that flows around, bizarre conspiracy theories that flow incredibly rapidly. It's a very, very, you know, it's a Discordian but also glorious kind of a weird Discordian utopia uh, in the world. You know, this is all sort of pulling on the, the strings of the drawbridge 
to lower it and have Terrence walk into 2021 and prognosticate or just be amazed. Uh, he would certainly be pleased that he could walk into the local cannabis dispensary in, what is it, you know, 26 states at this point. He doesn't have to hide it in his hotel room. With that, that's a little bit of a burst of a of an intro, and I can uh, cover a little bit of the work that I've done s- since Terrence and I last interacted. In the years since Terrence passed, uh, it was April 3rd, 2000, for those of you who are just joining, he ki- kind of everything went dark, and if you looked on the internet, you might find like an FTP location with some MP3 files. Uh, with Terrence's talk, there was really very little. It had all kind of gone away. And Terrence did most of his work in the pre-digital era, meaning that there was the web, and he had a nice Mac, but audio recordings were not really done to digital. They were done to still, believe it or not, cassette tapes or CDs. And so we started a project. I woke up in bed, actually, about 2005, with this strong sense of Terrence, just sort of in my presence. Maybe I'd been dreaming about him, and I spoke to him, and I said, Terrence, you left too soon. I'm bringing you back. And hence started this project to collect cassette tapes from many, many sources. We ended up getting about three to 400 from all these sources, digitizing them. Lorenzo Haggerty of the Psychedelic Salon came up. The salon had just started and we digitized them on boom boxes over a weekend, not 90 cassettes in one weekend of Terrence coming from three rooms in the house, you know, 24 hours a day. And that was dumped into the Psychedelic Salon, which was a brand new podcast, which is still, I think, one of the leading information sources for psychedelia. That started a sort of collecting process because Humpty Dumpty had fallen off the wall. His archives were then burned to the ground in the fire of, I think it was 2006 or seven in Pacific Grove, where the Esalen office, which stored his papers, literally was burnt to the ground. So the joke I had about it without, you know, beyond the tragedy of losing all of this material was that the machine elves came to remove the incriminating evidence. We said, we're gonna fight back. And we, we called the whole community together to let's put Terrence into cyberspace. And Terrence, in our last connection uh, in Hawaii in, in 1999, Constance Demby, and I don't know if any of you know who that is, she's a new age, magnificent composer who built, built her own instruments, the space base and the whale sail out of sheet metal. And fantastic co- compositions like Novus Magnificat from the 80s. And she came over to the conference. She shipped her instruments by sea. And there we were in a hotel in South Kona. And Terrence's diagnosis with his brain tumor had come in in May. And the conference went ahead anyway. He was there. Uh, he, he was looking, you know, a bit, a bit shaken. You know, he had half his hair shaved off. And he, the prognosis was not good for a glial blastoma multiforme. And, but he was super present. And Constance played at the end of the meeting. We all presented things. We all 
heard from Terrence was quite a group. It included writers and artists and people that had been influenced by the elixirs that had changed their careers, changed their creative lives. And Terrence uh, was sitting there and we didn't know what to do. So Connie's space bass, you know, reverberated its last notes and we, we didn't know what to do. And Terrence was sitting there and we were all in this big room and we decided to just lay down. Decided maybe it was Ken Symington or Rob Montgomery. Let's all just lay down and uh, Terrence will be in the middle of the room. And you can go to sleep, have a nap, you can send him energy, you can say goodbye, say hello, do anything you like to connect with Terrence because we don't know, don't know if he's going to be here the next time around. And uh, so as soon as my head hit the floor, I went into what I now call an endotrip. An endogenous, beautiful transmission started. And that endotrip was, I was on a green virtual plane and it was like the virtual world alpha world that we had been working with for a couple of years and that had gotten Terrence and I together because he was interested in avatars and virtual worlds as he should have been because it's it was his visible invisible landscape uh, in cyberspace but my head bumped into the carpet and i was suddenly a, a, a observer dot on this green plane as time went by as the seconds went by there was a whirring sound and up from above I, my observer cameras rendered its way up looking into the sky and there was this glistening dot coming down and as it got closer it was multi-glistening there was it was a bejeweled Fabergé egg and as it got closer still there were these curving windscreens on it and it was some kind of of a conveyance a vehicle and then it floated down and next to the seated figure of Terence Terence was the only figure in this virtual world Terence looked up it was floating next to him. He stood up and he stepped into a plush red rear seat. And an unseen driver, I assume some kind of machine elf, uh, did a click click and off they went. And it just went whir, 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 whir into the Azure Vale. And I noted that Terence lit up as it was departing. And there's a picture I posted on Facebook of. Terrence and I in this hotel in Kona uh, next to Robert Venosa. And it's the sort of goodbye photo. Both men died within a year or two years. And I told Terrence, I said, uh, I'd love to tell you if you were willing to listen what I saw in this sort of endo prone endo trip. So I told him the story and he turned to me and he said, ah, the getaway car. That was the the last words that we exchanged. We realized we're committing him to cyberspace, and this is a place he can live. And that that elvish limo, you know, elvish limousine that was traveling away was taking him somewhere. But we can actually put all the audio and videos, and we can do events like this in Clubhouse to revivify Terence in cyberspace and talk about him and re liven him and this is what Terence Day is for for our own communities and for the next generations 
and uh, go over some of his crackpot ideas and some of his solid insights. I received a, a bundle of papers of his letters uh, from uh, a collector, who's a professional collector, and they're letters from about 15 years of correspondence with Peter Meyer, who wrote the Time Wave Zero Code, and I received the original master diskette of that code and tech docs and stuff, and that's because of the fire in Pacific Grove, it's one of the only sort of set of documents that exist. Uh, Dennis, Dennis McKenna, his brother, has the scrawled in tiny hand handwriting uh, diary from La Chirera and a number of other things, but there's really virtually no artifactory evidence for Terrence. On the other hand, I've got 25 boxes of Timothy Leary's archives here. News clippings, record collection, books, etc. But Terence, Terence is it's only what we create of what we've got digitally. So we've committed him to and, and revivify him in cyberspace. Kind of relevant to our time and my work since since that time. Terence had this fascination, and I, and I was mentioned a bit earlier by one of you, the idea of novelty. And he read a number of books on this to inform himself. And the man had like 3,000 books in his home at all times. And he had read all of them. He's a very rare bird in this sense. And one of the books that he read was Whitehead's, uh, Alfred North Whitehead's Process Philosophy, which I've now become very, very fascinated with. Whitehead talks about there are no objects. So this is a mathematician physicist from the 1920s who came up with a radically different philosophy of reality that was informed by the birth of quantum, quantum mechanical theory at the time and his contemporaries. It's a fascinating way of looking at the world that objects concress out of previous events and then they are subjectively present in some way and then they kind of dump their data for the next moment. So even an atom is a thing that is in a stream. It's like a st stone or a, a twig in a stream that's going along and that everything's connected to everything else. And Whitehead has become, I think he's, he's the philosopher of our age. We're in the network age of this meme stream and continuous interruptions to our patterns of thought such that our patterns of thought are interruptions. And so Whitehead is, is fascinating and Terence uh, used Whitehead's term concrescence into novelty. So this is where you get this wonderful novelty that he would talk about. It came from his fascination with you know, the time wave of are there more complex things happening that join with each other to stack and create more complex things. And we had a conversation with this on this late one night uh, in the late 90s. I got pretty fascinated about it. I was very interested in the question of the origin of life since I was a teenager. And this was one more data. This was like a man that was a serious thinker who's little, little outside of academ academia, very outside of academia, but a real seeker into what makes things more complex. Six or seven years later, when I finally returned to do my PhD work, I chose the theme of what is 
complexification into novelty and built an entire simulation engine which ran at UC San Diego for six months to try to find the formula for how the universe gets things together and complexifies and doesn't lose those patterns. And it was called the Evolution Grid or Evo Grid. And we found a, what I call the Cosmic Wiggle. And Terence had this idea of the Cosmic Giggle, remember? That uh, is so fun to, to recall that, that meme. But the Cosmic Wiggle, in sort of in Terence's honor, was the staircase climbing curve where bonds were forming in trillions and trillions of atomistic uh, individual atoms flying around in a simulation engine at UC San Diego and some form bonds but not many but the ones that form bonds are seed used as a seed for the next simulation round so you end up we don't even know the properties that allow that volume to form bonds but we just take it wiggle it around shake it around but start with similar conditions and then we find more bonds form faster and faster and it's non-linear and despite the fact that we're throwing a ton of heat in there we're not breaking those bonds at a rate that would take the system down to what's called equilibrium and that's how I defended my PhD thesis in 2011 got my PhD and went on to apply that to the origin of life itself meeting Dave Deemer at UC Santa Cruz where I'm now a a researcher. In a sense, that conversation with Terence started a, a bunch of balls and a bunch of marbles rolling down a plank, which led to an onrushing effort to say, what is novelty? Can we find a formula for it? That the universe collects things together into more complex things, holds on to them, doesn't let them go, and then the stacking can occur. And it's the same formula that stars are forming heavier elements from. It's the same formula that would apply to the origin of life. It's the same formula that applies to the concrescence of cultural artifacts and systems of organization. Same through line all the way through from cosmogenesis to biogenesis to maybe conscious genesis. And then on top of all of this, and this is sort of the exciting thing, we found a way to do it chemically. We found a system, we call it the hot spring hypothesis, it's wet-dry cycling in a hot spring pool, and have done the chemistry to form little sacs called protocells that contain uh, various long lengths, chain lengths of polymers called RNA from de novo components, from the, the, the monomer building blocks. We can then cycle these things through wet and dry and moist phases, just as you would do taking a shower, you know, and the bathtub dries down or partially drains out, and you get a bathtub ring of solutes and fatty lipids on the side. That's the chemical engine that gives you the polymers that you need. So we found a way that nature would have had to make, at random, the polymers that life needed to get started and then a system to cycle all those polymers in these sacs called protocells through selection barriers. And this is a form of selection before Darwinian selection that had to exist. We may have found the bootstrap of life itself. 
and that's been published. It was the cover of Scientific American three years ago. Then it was on the cover of Astrobiology a year ago, and a feature in a feature article in Nature in December. And numerous publications and a dozen universities now working on testing various aspects of this whole hypothesis, which you can download if you put in hot spring hypothesis for an origin of life. You can get the article and it's all illustrated and whatnot. And if Terence was here in 2021, I would sit with him in his library, you know, probably light up a fat one, as he used to call them, and uh, go through it step by step and say, Terence, here is what we think the formula for compressence into novelty is, because we think it's the thing that led, you know, a jumble of organic polymers and things like that to across a chasm to being self-organizing, self-maintaining living cells. It was, the, it was in a sense the philosopher's stone at the lowest level or the, the elixir or you know you would call it, very, he would have various names from it from hermetic studies, but he would have been very, uh, very satisfied, gotten his head around it and uh, be able to comment on it and bring it out to the culture. So that, that's what I wanted to uh, leave off with as a, as a derivative work of these original, original meetings. The big philosophical role for the 2020s is that the progenote, which is this mass of, of self-assembled but passive protocells, is so flimsy and wobbly when you look at it in a vial or under a microscope slide, it's just, there's nothing going on there. So an individual protocell basically falls apart in solution. A clump of protocells stay together a long time and they hold their polymers. So what we predict is that life started in, in a clump. It started in a networked effect of chemical circuits in the progenome, in the, in the aggregate of protocells through sharing. Because you can't have competition red and tooth and claw, you know, survival of the fittest of or individual organisms before organisms have even the, the faintest ability to maintain their internal states. But a clump of things that are barely alive become, is, is a thing that is more alive. So the aliveness and robustness of the clump of those first fragile protocells is enhanced by their clumping together and, and co-reliance. And this, this could mean that the start of life was a deeply collaborative sharing and communal uh, process. And that if we look through that lens in the 2020s, we're working with evolutionary biologists now in the UK and elsewhere uh, to sort of work on the extended evolutionary synthesis that's going on right now. But if you look through that lens, you can start to see the world differently. You start to see that instead of the Victorian idea of survival of the fittest, of the, the beasts on the plains of Africa, that the actual plains of Africa, with mycelial layers and infinite numbers of microbial communities, infinite root reconnections, uh, is collaborative layer upon which the, the circus or the theater of these you know, Serengeti animals plays out. 
but the the fundamental thing they're standing on is deeply collaborative it's forests it's water systems it's, it's Gaia effectively so perhaps the Victorians didn't they got it partially right but not all of it they didn't understand the microbial consortia they didn't understand cell biology so life isn't all about survival of the fittest it's not all about you know competition bred in tooth and claw it's 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 largely about maintaining a healthy substrate upon which uh, everything can thrive and if the, we can roll that from science just as relativity theory in 1919-1921 became a, a huge role for modernism in the 20s the idea that everything was relative even time could change shape and change pace space space had shape and things were relative to your frame of reference and that was an idea that came into theater and politics and economics into modernism of the 20 1920s perhaps this idea that life started as a deep collaborative unit and only thrives through it can roll from core reductionist you know hard-headed uh, chemistry and geochemistry and origin of life it can roll into the culture like wake up people we have to make sure our networks of trust collaboration in our biosphere in our families in our children as they grow up they must be healthy that is primal so that's what I want to leave you with thank you for that prompt as to the meaning of, of this discovery well the interesting thing is I'm currently in collaboration with Matt Segal of California Institute of Integral Studies who's a wonderful Whitehead scholar and he's connected me with the Cobb Center at Claremont and all these other thinkers and they have what they call pan-experientialism which is I think Whitehead's version of panpsychism and what what we're going to argue we've, we've decided to take opposing positions so he's going to take the position that you know, that Whitehead did which was something like consciousness or experience or feeling and that feeling is different for an atom than a person is is primal and fundamental and that matter and all these things and you know objects emerge from that i'm going to take the position that no it's 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 bolts bolts to the metal it's from what the universe makes as a machine as a factory and then you get the origin of life and then you get massive network systems complexity and growth into bigger higher energy using animals neurons and you get a very massive interconnected system we call the PIM model probability interconnection and memory cycling at all scales over four billion years lifting everything to a potential point four billion years off normal and that this alone this this position that we're in and the sheer amount of you know, shit that's going on as Terence might say it uh, is sufficient to explain what we think of as consciousness numinous experience even the psychedelic downloads we get are from within the this field that is made by life and it's made from the lowest level all the way to the top and there's no need for an external say external manipulator creator and that there's no need for experience in a sense a panpsychist view 
which is saying that somewhere else there is a super uh, etheric force that we don't see yet. And in a sense, what I'm position I'm going to argue is that it's all around us. It's what we are. We need to look closer at life itself, not take our eyes off the ball, off of the geochemical, the molecular biology, and the planetary systems. We, those are the places that are going to show us what conscious experience is, uh, more than uh, creating another kind of a stand-in, which would be another approach for what creates the stuff of reality. You know, the, uh, the famous uh, stone date theory, and Terence often described this as, uh, well, it's my best shot at having something, you know, that could have been real or true, and he was very funny about it. I always appreciated the fact that he kind of didn't take himself that seriously on a lot of this stuff, because he knew how, how fuzzy he was and how far outside of people who do really serious work on how did apes evolve. You know, he's so, he's a dilettante, right? He's a, reading articles in Omni magazine and he's absorbing everything he can putting together pictures but he's not a worker in the field so he knew in a sense about his half-bakedness and he was partially what Alan Watts described himself as being a spiritual entertainer so perhaps you know Terence is a psychedelic entertainer but he had this one idea that apes on the plains of Africa came across you know psychoactive mushrooms on you know caprophytic mushrooms and that it was an important driver for their neural development. Recently there's been some reconsideration of this, which is wonderful. You know, maybe somebody will work on it. There's what I've heard that this, there's really no evidence that these mushrooms existed in the environments where humans evolved. My position on it, after spending time in rainforests, uh, the Amazon, uh, parts of Africa, is that the environment itself, if you're there, the sheer sonic environment, it's a, it's, a sym it's a symphony of trillions of insects, you know, millions of amphibians, uh, you know, birds, new world monkeys, old world monkeys, just never repeats. And that this environment is so information rich. There's so much stuff to watch out for there's so much interaction between, at all levels, of the body, the nervous system, that it's enough to drive an organism toward complex emergence and cognition. Artipithecus, which we knew she was walking the forest floor and she had uh, the ability to climb trees and pick fruit, but she was upright, she was not on the savanna. Uh, some of our oldest ancestors that did walk upright, at least part of the time, uh, lived in the rainforest, so the rainforest hadn't receded yet. So I think of the the rainforest and then, of course, the savanna is enough to drive all of the evolutionary processes toward cognition, toward language. But that's just my kind of reductionist. Let's go to the published articles and, and check it out. And a little comment on the Eric Davis interview. What's most poignant, we, we put that, we edited your edit of it and put it into the Psychedelic Salon. It's a couple of podcasts in there if people want to find it. Uh, what was most poignant about that interview was when Eric asked Terrence, what is your, you, what will you think of as your most important contribution as a human to the culture? 
And Terence's answer was immediate and direct. He said, I think it's the Mushroom Grower's Guide that my brother and I wrote, you know, under pseudonyms. I think that that was our biggest contribution. It brought this thing into the culture. It really helped to do that. So that was an interesting comment about Terence and his own legacy. You know, my share of numinous experiences that I, you know, that blew my mind that came from some other place. But in a sense, I don't attach to them. I attach to them not as I was just shown something so far outside of human experience that there must be some big, greater, bigger thing. I attach to them of like, okay, that just happened. I'm an engineer at heart. How can I figure out an explanation for what made that happen, what that made that movie reel play? And what were the messages in the movie reel? And so I started using that movie reel to solve uh, some of these problems. So I used these, these extenuated states to work on the origin of life with uh, that numinous state and whatever showed up there, whether it's an entity, it's entitied, or whether it's myself, I have no idea, but I would write contracts and agreements and go into that world, a, a relationship to, to bring back solutions. And Terence used to talk about if the machine elves could give us a shiny object that we could bring back to reality and show to the world, we would just blow people's minds. So instead of the shiny object, I've been trying to bring back, and, and it's been a little bit successful, uh, visions of, of these basic questions of how did life begin? And I, not not 100%, but partially using the entry into those, those states. So I'm very much the engineer that wants to figure out the code that is running under there because if we can figure that code out we can use those numinous states tr tremendously powerfully for our future for our survival for thriving if we can we can learn the, the code of, of of creating them and of uh, surfing in them but not not otherize them not uh, really own them really own the relationship with them so that that's just my philosophy over the whole thing at the SAND conference in 2017, if you look up Bruce Damer Science and Non-Duality keynote or wherever it was, it was, it was Origin of Life and Consciousness. For that crowd, that audience, which would include Don, Donald Hoffman, I held up a rock, a stromatolite from the Pilbara uh, three billion years ago that has these layers in it, and that's evidence for life on the old Earth's crust, the Archean crust. I, I said, I know this, this group likes the groundless, the ground, and they got a big laugh about that, but, but this is our common ancestor. What I'm holding in my hand is some of the oldest evidence of where we began, and I handed it out to all 600 people, passed it around, and uh, I said, if we ground ourselves in what this is, uh, and we don't do so much conjecture that's too far from where we came from. We may find some amazing new insights uh, because science is just delivering us, delivering us cosmology, it's delivering us incredible insights. And I think there's enough there to rework our understanding, which has only partially been reworked, uh, onto a basis of, of, of evidence and of 
beautiful, solid model making that's testable. I, I think that that's, for me, that's the richest path. That's, that's the path that's always going to deliver. And, and it's, it's, it's really, really reductive reasoning. And that's why it's satisfying for gearhead people, kind of like me. If you take what's effectively a little soap bubble, which is a, a lipid bilayer that came from a meteoritic source, your monomers uh, could be amino acids from also that meteoritic source or generated in the atmosphere or through photochemistry. And your monomers of, of things like nucleic acids and peptides, and you throw it into solution and cycle it, you can get together, get it all together. You can form these little things called protocells through wet-dry cycling. But those things are really flimsy. If you, if you throw them into solution and you stir it up, you're going to burst those little compartments and nothing's gonna happen. But what happens miraculously and expectedly is the the little little pool that you threw them into dries up during the day, gets them all together in a sludge, they form a unit, an aggregate, and then they even dry down together. And then the synthesis of new polymers can occur. And it is the sludge, the ignoble sludge, that we perhaps started with the ignoble sludge and because together the power of those protocells together is much greater to to remain stable than it is to have them free floating in solution and so that's a basic fundamental principle that i believe carries through all of life all the way up to to us and human civilization if we break the bonds of interconnection if we get isolated into groups, we lower our probabilistic ability to solve problems. And if we start corrupting memory of our culture, we start creating fake news and fake histories and fake elections and whatever we want to create, we, we break the very system that drives life, that, that sourced life in the first place, this thing we're calling PIM. We make it weaker and we'll fall. And so the system understanding of incredible codependence and, and surfing resources and sharing them, which operates at all scales in life, if we deeply grok that, we, we will survive and we will be able to steward the earth and we'll be able to actually enter into long-term habitation in space and create more living space for, for life. Thank you for being such a faithful listener to The Levity Zone. As I took a break in the past year to undergo a complete replatforming of my life, I am now in a new love partnership, in a new home with new life objectives. I am also physically morphing with a growing, growing, graying beard into a 21st century version of Gandalf the Graying who realms into far reaches of science and philosophy and peers out onto our challenging little Middle Earth from here on the hill at Ancient Oaks. I deeply appreciate your support of this work through my Patreon and in many other ways. This is allowing me 
to realm even further, and I believe to bring back some profound new insights, science, and even technical solutions to humanity for our future. I hope that some of these solutions, working in great collaboration with others, help to bring about the aforementioned survival and thrival of humanity into the mid to late 21st century and beyond. I invite you all to reach out to me with any thoughts you might have or any offers of support or new direction at my personal website at www.damer.com.